Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Albert, so this is a, a big one for you today. We have a, an opera singer, Mike, on here. So I know you're super psyched to have him on. Michael Mays, I think some of his yes. buddies call him the Mazer. The Mazer. amazing. And I'm sure we'll find many ways to work ourselves in and out of the maze. That is Michael Mays. Uh, he's a really an extraordinary, uh, very unique uh, singer. Um, maybe I'll just briefly, Adam, since you've not met him before, how, uh, why I um, asked uh, Mike to be on the, um, the show was very simple. Uh, I heard Mike down in um, Atlanta Opera. Atlanta Opera is, my, is a client of my company's, and they were producing a work called Dead Man Walking, which is a modern opera by Jake Heggie, which is one of the most performed contemporary operas. And it's, of course, about a man on death row. And it is a very, very powerful, very disturbing, and also very transcendent work. Michael played the, the murderer at, at the center of the opera. And it, this performance was just, it blew my mind. It was so incredibly intense. I mean, it, it's, it's really as, as, as demanding as anything you're ever gonna see on, on a stage. Afterwards, I met him, the coolest guy, I met him backstage. A um, Couple of uh, weeks ago, we're gonna be working together on another project at, at Atlanta Opera called Glory Denied, which is another contemporary opera about the America's longest held um, prisoner of war. And Michaels created this character and performed it, this role before. And um, at, when Mike uh, came to our offices, um, we were talking about promoting it. I was getting information from him, getting a little bit of his take on opera. And he said a lot of fascinating things. But first of all, he shows up wearing the coolest Western shirt and the coolest, I think it was a Levi's leather jacket, like trucker style type two jacket. And he walked in, I was like, okay, I may have to confess and tell this guy I have a style blog, which I never tell anybody in my field. And um, as he talked to us, he was so outspoken and so open about him, his life and some of the challenges that he's faced um, that I was like, wow, dude, I'm gonna even reveal more about myself. I'm doing this podcast um, about, about masculinity, about vulnerability, and it would just be so awesome to have you on the show. And you know, I sent him an email and he wrote right back uh, afterwards, like, oh, sure, dude, I'd do your show. So that's really it. So we, we don't know each other like super well, but I think we're going to know a lot more about, about Mike today. Right on. Well, I'll give him the uh, official intro here. Michael Mays has a powerful voice and a arresting stage presence. As a baritone, he's known for his consummate portrayals of modern operatic masterpieces, as well as iconic characters in the standard operatic repertoire. Originally from Cut and Shoot, Texas, Mace has performed in major opera companies across the U.S. and around the world. Michael, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Hi, great to be here, man. And you're in, in Stuttgart. We assume you're there performing opera. Yeah, I'm in, uh, I'm in Schwabenland, which is like the southern part of Germany, near, uh, near sort of the next state over from Munich and Bayonne. And, um, yeah, I'm doing a little, a little Baroque opera that's sort of different than what I normally do with opera with a conscience. And we talked about that earlier about, you know, opera that sort of has a different, different, different approach than what most people think you're doing. What I'm doing here is just pretty standard. And, you know, it's, what, what is the actual character that you're portraying? What, what I'm, is playing your... a, I'm playing a, I'm playing a, 
Well, um, it's it's called the, the name of the opera is Iphigenie on Tauride, which is a it's it's a, it's a Greek myth, and I basically play a xenophobic ruler whose solution to immigration is to burn everybody. So, Ooh, you know, so it's actually quite topical. It's very topical. <laughs> no, seriously, it really totally. is. I'm, I mean, yeah. and and who's the composer? Gluck. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to learn my Gluck. First of all, I'm so intimidated by the title of his operas, I can't pronounce any of them. <laughs> so you said it beautifully. So one of the things, first of all, I had to Google it. And like, I didn't realize there was a city called Cut and Shoot, Texas. Yeah, it exists, man. It's, and uh, so it's, you, that's where you grew up. You like tell us a little bit about growing up in Cut and Shoot, Texas. Well, Cut and Shoot, Texas is outside of uh, Conroe, which is outside of Houston. It's right in the middle of the uh, uh, Piney Woods of East Texas, and uh, it's just a place where you know the first question that anybody really asks you upon meeting them is, uh, "What church do you go to?" You know, it's a it's a real sort of conservative. I mean, it's what you think of when you think of sort of like conservative East Texas, you know. And so I grew up in this town singing bluegrass, country, and gospel music. And I didn't really even discover opera until I got to college. And, so, and where'd you go to college? I went to the University of North Texas, which was, a, a, compared to where I grew up, it was a, a, a metropolis. You know, 20, 26, 27,000 people. You're huge for me. Because <laughs> Cutting Sheet only had about a thousand folks in it, so uh, wow. it was a definite upgrade for me. Went to the big. That's that's city. a small town, a thousand folks. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bigger now. Had, but you had siblings growing up. What what was your basic family? Yeah, I had two, I had two sisters. I, so like my me and my dad were always outnumbered in the house, you know. So there was always a uh, mom and two sisters around, and they were both uh, eight and nine years older than me. So you know, I was. Uh, you were the baby boy. I was the baby boy. Can't do, couldn't do anything wrong, you know. So, so was there a lot of support for your your singing? Everybody was like, "Oh my God, our our son's got a voice, our brother's got a voice, and we're excited about it." And you were encouraged with your singing. Yeah, I mean, you know, at first, especially when everybody thought I was going to be a, a gospel singer or a, a music minister for a church or something like that, that was really there were people were pretty excited about that. When I finally, when I came home from college after about a, a year of school and told them that opera was going to be the thing boy they it was it was a little bit uh, tense around the house for a few months there but they finally relaxed and got into it my my uh, middle sister is probably my biggest fan now she's gone to more opera than um, anybody that I that I know in my fan base i mean she she literally sold 60 tickets to see rigoletto in houston when i was there because that was basically my hometown and I, I like the, the company was like, we really should hire your sister as a community engagement officer because my God, 60 tickets. That's fantastic. And your family, they do they still live in cut and shoot or are they more? No, everyone left. I mean, my parents moved to Colorado for about 10 years, which is great. It's a little town called Creed, which is just wonderful, about 9,000 feet up above sea level. But uh, my mother got some blood clots and she couldn't, she couldn't uh, live at the altitude anymore. So they both oh, wow. have repatriated back to Texas. Uh, they're up in the Dallas area around my oldest sister now. So, so you, your Instagram profile says I went from Opry to opera and back again. Yeah. From opera to Opry. Who and back to again. Opry. And, and, yeah. and I'm, who says I can't, you can't do both. Yeah. How, how much tension it was there in you between what kind of singer am I going to be and what am I going to do? Was this well, a, a 
it was a bit of an identity crisis for me, you know, because I mean, I'm what 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 the uh, what opera and Opry and and the sort of the juxtaposition of those two things, because you know, Opry is is for folks that may not know, uh, you know, the Grand Ole Opry. That's Nashville. That's country music, and opera is you know opera, yeah, like what we think of. And for me, like I had a really hard time relating to the characters that I was discovering early on in my education, which were dukes and kings and duchesses. And it wasn't until I started, you know, singing American opera in English about real people that I really understood the power of the of the art form. And it took me actually uh, telling American stories in my native tongue to be able to become the artist that I am today. Because, you know, the point is when you do an opera in German or Italian or French or Czech or Russian, that, you know, as you're saying the words and, and, and as you're communicating, you need to be feeling the emotions. And if you don't have an emotional uh, uh, understanding of the language, that's very difficult. And what I discovered after doing uh, opera in English was that a lot of people don't, ha don't even have an emotional uh, connection to the language that they speak first. And it was sort of discovering those, that sort of emotional connection to language and to English and to these stories that are part of the American fabric that really, you know, sort of allowed me to become the artist that I am today. You know, being able to tell the story of the longest LPOW in American history, uh, being able to tell the story of a, a death row inmate, being able to tell the story of a, of a gay man who was uh, killed in the Holocaust. You know, all these disenfranchised people, these stories that are, that are really compelling, you know, being able to tell them in a very personal way, that was, was what really opened up my eyes to the art form. Wow. What was the actual first um, opera where uh, that you performed? Was it was it Dead Man Walking? Was that actually the breakthrough one that made you? No, really I mean, I, I didn't. I discovered Dead Man Walking uh, later in my career. I mean, I start, you know, when you start out, you start out with the basics, man. I mean, and then you, you know, you sort of work your way up to like, you know, Mozart and and things. And so, you know, my first experience with opera was, I think the first opera I ever saw was Samson and Delilah. And I literally sat there, you know, my little redneck ass talking to these, <laughs> you know, sitting in, in these, in, in, in an opera house with all these rich people. And, you know, I'm, I grew up in a trailer in East Texas, so I, you know, I already don't belong. And then there's all these people singing in French and moving slow. And it's just boring. It's four hours. I just couldn't get into it. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? It wasn't until I discovered pieces like, uh, well, the first, the first role that I really connected with was uh, Frank Morant Street Scene by Kurt Vile, which is, you know, a piece about um, depression era America, you know. And uh, again, this guy was a xenophobic sort of racist guy that ends up killing his wife. And uh, so he's a, you know, basically your typical uh, toxically masculine racist. And, uh, I had plenty of archetypes for those, for that guy in the world that I grew up in. So I could immediately connect it with the, the, the character and because of the people I knew. So, and, and it was, it, it was those kind of pieces that really sort of brought me into, into touch with this. So, I mean, it seems as, as you and I talked, uh, and when we met to, to, to spin out further from that, that basically you understood that you could use, contemporary American opera to actually have an impact on society, that it, that opera then became uh, not just an entertainment, opera became sort of a, a, a tool of education, of 
political change of mm-hmm. thought provo- provocation. I mean, is that is that what am, am I on the right track with that? Yeah, I mean that's that's why I coined the, the those hashtags uh, contemporary Amer- uh, contemporary American Verismo opera and opera with a conscience because you know I, I do all this old timey stuff like what I'm doing here in Stuttgart uh, with this Gluck opera. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not breaking uh, any anybody's. I'm not breaking through any barriers here. I'm not. I'm not uh, giving somebody a catharsis with this role. This is this is a role that I that I'm that I'm doing, and I'm expanding my network, and I'm I'm sort of doing the doing the work. This is the work part of the job. The passion part of the job is when I go back to Atlanta and do Glory Denied, or I do um, you know Copper Queen in Arizona. It's these other stories that the the, the old fashioned stuff kind of finance for me because it's my passion lies in. And being able to connect with with my audience in their own tongue. And just for the folks out there who don't know opera, you said that phrase American Verismo. Verismo is an Italian word. It was sort of late 19th century opera. It was basically opera based on real people, real life people, as opposed to mythological and ancient characters, right? It's kind of Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean you're you tell telling the real I mean it's a that's I mean that's really the the populist nature of the art form. And that's the thing I tend to lean into. Because when I do opera that has a populist bent to it, that that definitely you know that 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 attacks these issues head on, um, I know that people like me, that grew up like me, can sit in that room and have a catharsis with everybody else, as opposed to sitting in a room uh, watching Cosi Fan Tutte, which is about four hours uncut, about you know these dilettantes, moneyed people that. You know, people like me don't have any relation to. But if you tell a story about a, a, a disenfranchised poor white guy with anger management problems who ends up killing somebody, yeah, I understand those because I grew up with those guys, you know. And I can actually speak to that subject a lot a lot easier than I can with these royals, you know. So can we go back then and, and tell us, did, were you sort of a passive observer of this behavior that you just described, this uh, in 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 that community around you, this ta- you know we we use this phrase uh, toxic masculinity, but clearly growing up you saw some very very intense archetypes and and people behaving a certain way. W- were you observing it, or were you actually like in the thick of it, having to confront it, and it was a very very uh, uh, intense interaction? What what was the, did you grow up more? Just observing the, the, this behavior, or were you deeply impacted by it? I think you do. I think it's a combination of those things. I mean, I, I don't think you can grow up in that world that is so intensely, you know, it's it's so saturated with this machismo uh, stuff, where you know men will talk about their feelings and they're tough, and you know, feelings are for women and all this stuff. You know, you can. I think some people sort of retreat from that and some people sort of lean into it and i think for most people you probably do both like there are times in my life when i actually you know i actually engage in that activity i engage in that mindset myself in order to just to survive you know and there are times when i was a victim of that mentality and you know through bullying and all this all that stuff i mean you know growing up in you know i grew up playing football and all this stuff and i didn't discover uh, classical music till high school and college. And when you turn your back on the football team and all that stuff and go into classical music, well, it doesn't go over so well with some folks. And you, you sort of get drug around and people screw with you. People in my family were pretty, you know, pretty, 
Um, they were pretty demeaning with the comments they would make about what I decided to choose to do with my life as opposed to do doing, you know, uh, working in construction or something like that. So, you know, th these days it's, it's, it's great because I've actually had some modicum of success in the business and people can see that I'm not doing it well, but back then it was just, it was, it was more of a point for people to sort of use uh, against me. You know, you, you, in my office, you, you did talk about, uh, some real serious difficulties that arose as a as, as a result. I, I didn't because we were there in, in a in a business setting. I couldn't really ask you, but was a lot of your of the issues that you started facing um, um, were they really driven by more by your uh, professional challenges trying to find a, a path with your singing, or is it was it uh, more of a person more of a personal. Uh, uh, thing that was going on there that triggered you kind of hinted and intimated to me that you reached sort of a crisis point of some sort. Yeah. I mean, you know, this business, when you, when you jump into this world, it is a real, it's, it's, it's a very difficult, uh, road to, to travel. Uh, it's, especially when you're, I mean, I'm, I'm this sort of trailer trash white kid, you know, that gets dropped off in the opera world. And I'm trying to, for a long, for a, 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 for much of my career, I tried to be the stereotype, man. I grew my hair out. I had a goatee, you know, uh, <laughs> I would wear suits to all my auditions and, and be very proper and, and I lost my accent and everything. And then like, after a while, I mean, you know, you, you know, when you do this, when you go into the arts, when you go into performing, when you go into this world, you have to give up more than you ever thought you'd give up. And I ended up giving up my first marriage and a lot of the dreams and ideas that I thought I was going to, the way my life was going to look. And it ended up, you know, because of this business and because of the stress that I put on relationships, I ended up uh, getting divorced in my first, my, with my, for my first wife and the fallout from the circumstances surrounding that and just the complete upheaval of going from, you know, I was a, a hardcore evangelical Christian young man who married the evangelical Christian young woman and who were sort of the, the example of how you could, uh, you could do this job and be successful at it and still be married and still be a Christian and still be all these things. Well, when that all fell apart, I really lost my identity in that world. And uh, the fallout from that actually led to me really, you know, I mean, I walked right up to the edge of the abyss. I had a, a really uh, terrible suicide attempt that, you know, fortunately for me and for everybody around me, uh, didn't, wasn't successful. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, when you, when you lose sort of everything in your identity and everything, it's, it, I got to this point where, you know, I really had to make a decision about what I was, what the rest of my life was going to look like. And I couldn't do it the same way. I have never heard, I mean, the way that you just uh, described, like, like, that moment of reaching, I mean, you don't reach further bottom than questioning whether or not you want to continue your life. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, think and imagine and, and wonder what circumstances they'd have to be facing. Because in a way, we can't ever really, really understand what we're going to come up against that's going to push us to the edge. So, so was it just, uh, it was uh, fate, luck, whatever, that, that you, you came away from that abyss, but clearly also somehow you, you, you were able to rebuild your life. So tell us a little bit about 
going from that abyss moment to rebuilding to becoming now someone who's you know, using opera to, to try to influence society. You're, 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 I mean, it's a very, very big transformation. I mean, I tell you that, I mean, the moment that it happened, I had a 20 gauge shotgun in my mouth, right? And I was junkered in a three dick monkey. And I was like going, I was just losing my, you know, I was way off my rocker. And I could literally see, I was in this house that I had bought. It was going to be my 25 year house. And I had just gotten, you know, gotten rid of all the furniture. And there was nothing left in the house but uh, a bed and a shotgun and some dishes. And so I was sitting there and I thought, well, this is it. You know, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, you know, I've actually left the marriage and sort of made this decision to go ahead and be an opera singer no matter what. You know, it was going to be what I was going to do. But then it's the, the reality of what the decision I made had, had sunk in. And it meant that I had to be successful. I had to win at this. And it just seems so impossible. It seems so impossible. And everything I had dreamed of up until that point was had, had just evaporated. And so like I literally like was sitting on the edge of my bed in the deep dark bed out of my soul, and my heel bumped up against my shotgun that was sitting under my under my bed. And that sort of seemed like the solution to all these problems, you know, the simplest, easiest solution. And I got as far as to put it, you know, putting the barrel in my mouth and getting it ready, taking the safety off. And something just made me pause, made me stop. And I don't know. And I don't believe in, you know, I'm, I've, I've, I used to be hardcore Christian and all that stuff. I'm, I'm sort of uh, I left a lot of that behind after this moment because I don't believe in any magical things. It's just, you know, I had a, a pause, a moment to stop. And when I pulled it out of my hand, pulled it out of my mouth and set it on my lap, I was so sort of out of it that my finger hit the trigger and the damn thing went off. So if you've ever heard a shotgun blast, it's loud, but a shotgun blast in a bedroom is real loud. And I put a hole that was about two feet long because uh, it hit the wall at an angle in my, in my bedroom wall. And that sort of shook me, shook me out of what, I mean, it sort of made me realize what I was going to do, like what I was going to, Expose my parents to if they had to come find me or my sisters, my nephews and nieces. And boy, it just kind of shook me out of it. And I realized the next day I had to go, I had to show the house because we were selling it. So I had to get that hole fixed before the people came in and took a tour of the house. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that'll give you more perspective than uh, drywall, you know, put, putting a patch in the drywall over a hole that was supposed to be in your head. And so that moment, I just, I, I literally knew like I had to, it was like a, a line in the sand. I, I couldn't go backwards. I couldn't go back to the life that I had before. I had to move forward. And that was sort of the big moment of my life where everything changed, you know, like the stakes just got extremely high. Could, could we stop just one second? You mentioned that you had been dr drinking this night that you put this hole in the wall. Uh, had you had any issues with drinking before? Were you drinking a lot or was that just a night? Where yeah. I mean, that's, that's how, I, I mean, that's how people in my culture sort of dealt with, you know, we don't go to therapy. You know, what are we, some kind of pansies therapy? Talk about your feelings. What's that? A bunch of sissies, you know, uh, we, we drank and you, you caught, you sort of buried your emotions. And that was a, that was a way to, um, 
that was that was the way we dealt with our with with unpleasant emotions. We buried it. Well, the problem is with alcohol is that buried emotions don't say buried when you get hammered. You know, and I like I did struggle with. I, I wouldn't say that I was an alcoholic, but I definitely used I definitely self medicated. You know, in order to just to get through the day. So after this this incredible potentially what it could have been the great the great tragic moment for the for the, the people who love you. Um, I can't even say what that, what it is for you, it's, but but it, it, the words you know, there's no words to describe it. But um, where you said that everything has to change. So what 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 did you do? How how did you get out of that place? Well, I just started. Re- I, I started to rebuild my identity, of who I thought I was, and what I was here for. And what that meant was, you know, I wasn't I wasn't going to try to be this. Uh, I wasn't going to keep trying to be the good employee, right? The sort of like the the dream interviewee, but in our in our um, in our world, it'd be auditiony, right? I started thinking like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to find the things that that make me feel like I did when I sang country music, that make me feel like I, I did when I sang gospel music and Christian music, even though I was no longer a Christian. I started looking, you know, for that sort of group catharsis with with an audience that I missed and I wasn't getting an opera. And when I when I was able to sort of like, I mean, it, it made me start taking a lot more chances, you know. I mean, I had to sell everything I, I, I had. And I moved, I moved, I, I, I had a big garage sale, sold everything I had. What I had left, I put in my pickup truck and drove to my parents' house and put it in their garage. I bought a camper and I stuck a bed in the back of my pickup truck. And I would drive around. I mean, I just lived out of my truck for like five years, you know, going from gig to gig. I ended up picking up a pit bull on the way. You know, he was great. Good company. And uh, that's how, I mean, did the you then, just got did, At that point, did you um, actually get professional help in any, any way? You know, I didn't. You did. I should have. That ter- that journey, the journey here would have been a lot, a lot faster, and would have been a lot less destructive. And I probably would have. You know, that's the thing about when you when you have this kind of uh, disorder, you know, in your life, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody you come in contact with: your parents, your sisters, your your wife, your relationships, your friends. And had I had I sought out some good professional help back then, I probably would have had a much less painful journey to get to where I am now. But that's just not the way it worked out for me. And maybe it was, you know, my path to sort of fight through it on my own and develop this, this sort of artistic ethos as a result, you know, because everything got really, really intense, you know, and I, I was able to take a lot more risk that I, that I wouldn't have ever taken before. I would talk to people that were that are very important big shots, and I would talk to them just like I'm talking to you now, instead of being so poised. And and so I, I ended up talking. That's how I got my first dead man walking. Is I literally walked up to the guy at a bar who was I knew was producing it and told him that I was your guy. I'm your next dead man walking. And he sort of <laughs> okay, well tell me why. And I did. I told him you know how I grew up and what I did, and you know it was the experience of going through those projects and being able to tell those stories in a way that was true. You know, I was able to bring my truth to it from that that rural East Texas upbringing. 
I was able to bring that truth to those characters that I don't think people had really thought was really possible in opera. They always thought of opera as something sort of less than when it came to that kind of. Have you cut, gone back to cut and cut and shoot and, and uh, sang some opera for the for the for the community? Or <laughs> do you, when you go home, do you just do sing gospel and and you uh, know I just haven't had much chances to go back, right? Like I to go back. Uh, my parents don't live there anymore, so. I actually went, went back and saw some friends and, and when I was there in Houston doing Rigoletto just this past fall. And, uh, but as far as going back in any form of capacity, I mean, it's a small, it's such a small town. There aren't like performance halls or there's just churches, basically. It. So no, I mean, I haven't really, when I go back, I do like, you know, I did write a show eventually, you know, as a result of sort of my under, my sort of long journey of understanding that say, you know, opera music and country music are about the same stuff. It's about the same stuff. It just takes opera three and a half minutes or three and a half hours to do what country music can do in three and a half minutes. Because it's about drinking, it's about love, it's about hardship, it's about all those. It's it's verismo music, country music. So I ended up writing a, a show called From Opera to Opry, Liquor, Love, and the Lord. And it's literally a, a comedy show about the similarity and the universality of music, especially between these two art forms, which are basically the same thing. It's just one form is a long form, one's a short form. Can we find that on uh, YouTube? Have you actually put that up somewhere? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, the, the audio and video quality are pretty poor because it was an experiment when we did it that ended up being really successful. And uh, are, you, are you shopping it around to some opera companies and saying, how about bringing this one back? Well, we did it. We did it in Atlanta two years running to sold out audiences. Yeah, they loved it. So, and we've had, we've had chances to put it up. Ravinia was talking to us about doing it up in Chicago. It's just the hard part about it is it's four opera singers that also grew up playing country music, just like me. And the problem is trying to get four opera singers to have a schedule that lines up is, is difficult. So I can't resist asking who are some of your country music legends, stars, educated New Yorker like me a little bit, like, I know Patsy, of course, Patsy and Hank Williams. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always the big guys, you know, like Hank Williams, Willie Nelson, uh, George Jones, Farron Young, uh, Mickey Newberry, all those guys. But, like, there's also, like, Towns Van Zant and Guy Clark and, you know, Pat Green and all these sort of Texas storytellers and Dale Watson, you know. These are all guys I, that I love and listen to. They, You know, it's, it's, it's that real sort of roots country. And I don't really, you know, I don't have much affection for the – the new pop country, the alt country stuff. I really, I really get into because it's still about real life, and it's not about I got my truck and my tractor and my little dog poot stuff like that. I don't really care. <laughs> like seriously, I don't care. But these guys that are telling, I mean, there's these these alt country bands that are sort of have taken. I mean, they all grew up the same way we did. They grew up hearing all this country music. They couldn't help but be influenced by it. And even though that they may not be doing what you would call country music, they have a country ethic in what they do, you know. So, Adam, you're talking, uh, when was the last time, Adam, you talked to an opera singer? Uh, actually, there is one at my work. Um, this uh, guy, Austin, is uh, an opera singer, and you'll catch him on his breaks doing his vocal warm-up. So I actually talk to an opera singer quite frequently. Um, and I got to say, my, I finally picked my jaw up off of the floor after your story and i'm just you know still a little bit in shock about it but my question to you is 
when you started kind of expressing your art form, I feel like that was your communication to kind of tell your story and, you know, show your emotions. Um, besides your projects and your singing, like what other forms of communication did you, you know, kind of dive into to kind of help you uh, transition back to, you know, obviously you're a very vibrant, you know, happy person now. I mean, it's just great. I mean, you just have so much emotion and so much death to you. You know, how did, how did you communicate to, to get there? Well, you know, I mean, we talk a lot. I mean, we were talking earlier about vulnerability, you know, and I came from a, a very hyper-masculine, macho world. Um, now, you know, that gave me a great insight into that mindset, but it's not a thing I wanted to live in. And so, like, being able to, to be vulnerable is really an asset for me as an artist and as a, as a, a particularly as an opera singer who sings the kind of opera I do. Because I cannot tell the truth if I'm hiding behind a bunch of artifice. And so, the, the, I mean, earlier you asked, you know, should I, you know, did I, did I get professional help? Well, no, I didn't. What I did have though was the stage. And, you know, whenever you go to therapy, there's a lot of role play, right? They say, you know, there's role plays and it's a very effective therapy for people. Well, my entire life was role play. So I got to experience these grand emotions, these very intense emotions and act them out like to be a murderer, to be, a, to play these. I played a lot of monsters, you know, and that rage that you have to have access to, to be able to play these characters. You know, I had a safe place to play that out on because the safe, you know, I always say, you know, the stage is the safest place in the world because you can do anything and get away with it. If you do the stuff that you do on stage out in the world, they'll put you in jail for it. And I'm lucky because when I, when, whenever I get to go out on stage, I get to go through those really intense emotions in a very safe way where nobody gets hurt. Most people don't get that. And that's what my job is, is to go out there and do that in a very intense way so that the audience gets to experience that ride with me without actually having to do the very scary, dangerous thing. When my, I was playing this, this role this past summer, Botsek, which is, it's, it's this, I mean, it's like the quintessential modern German opera. It's atonal. So there's literally no major, minor, half-step relationships. It's like beep-bop or beep-burp, like completely out there musically. And it's about a man who's slowly going like insane. He's got like bipolar disorder times a million, right? And he's, he's being experimented on and pushed on and squeezed by society until he just pops. And he ends up killing his wife because she cheats on him. It's this whole other thing. But he, he is really, he is the, the byproduct of societal pressure on the individual increased to a, the kind of intensity that you'd only find at the center of a black hole. And what happens is he explodes. Now, there was one moment where he's literally being humiliated and pushed. And he's just found out his wife's cheating on him or his girlfriend is cheating on him, who's the mother of his child. 
and he was being humiliated by, by the guy who, who, who's doing it to him in front of the whole room full of people, all his colleagues. And he's being, he's at a tavern and he's screaming. And this is what's great about Berg is that the music is so intense and it's so, like, it's not meant to be pretty. It's meant to be really like express, expressionistic in, in this truest form of the word, truest sense of the word. And he, he ends up screaming at this one point that the note is a G flat, which is pretty high. And it's meant to be in a falsetto. It's meant to be like, <laughs> like this. It's very intense emotionally. Well, I told you earlier about my dog that I had, had picked up along the way on the road, and he was the best. And this past summer, he would die to cancer. He had really he had cancer really bad. And um, I mean, he had gone through, I mean, he was, he's, he was 11. So, he, I mean, I had him through the most intense moments of my life, the hardest moments of my life. And he died before my last performance of Vatsa. It's like he got, he got me through so many hard moments in my life, so many hard performances. He was, a lot of times, he was the only person in the world that was around when I would be losing my mind in my apartment, you know, from being broke and not having been able to pay my bills and, and, you know, not being able to have the success I wanted and just trying to get to where I wanted to be. He was there. And it's like he got me to that last performance and said, the last one's on you, buddy. And he died the day before. I had to put him down. That night, when I did that performance, and I screamed, that was me screaming about Pete dying, knowing I had just lost my best friend in the world. And that pain was real. And everybody in the audience felt that pain, too. Now, that pain had nothing to do with Marie and Vodsek and their relationship. But it was analogous. And I was able to express that in that safe, split, safe place. And I think, you know, if more people were allowed to be able to express that kind of pain that they're experiencing in a safe place like the stage, you know, I think it would, it would be great for a great, a great way to, for people to, to off gas. So I don't think we, especially men, we're not allowed to have that experience, you know? Well, one thing I have to say, um, you used the phrase group catharsis earlier of what happens in, in an opera house or in a theater when an audience experiences a work of art. And I think there's a couple of different things about that phrase that I love. First of all, it's a group catharsis. It's not just the artist that has the catharsis, that if the engaged audience member is having that catharsis and able to experience that catharsis as well. And in a way, the, the give and take between the audience and the performer is the only way that it really happens. I'm sure if you feel that the audience is really gripped by what you're doing, it's only gonna bring out more and more of the purity of your inspiration and your motivation. Um, so I love that group catharsis, which in, in really is an, is an argument for why people need the arts and why people should investigate the arts. Uh, I, I'm gonna get a little plug in for Atlanta Opera. They do um, a program with uh, Home Depot where they send veterans to opera performances. I think they've sent six, 7,000 uh, veterans. I, 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 I know it's in the thousands to experience art. I'm imagining people coming backstage, the, these veterans coming backstage and probably feeling like they are very close to the experience that you 
had, I mean, I mean, you talked about a safe space. It's the opposite of the safe space. The battlefield would be the, the opposite of the safe space. I'm just wondering, did you have any, any particular stories of, of men coming backstage, whether they're veterans or not, and telling you, oh, my God, what you did for me? Every time. I mean, l- literally, it is the thing. This, these kinds of experiences are the reasons, is, is the reason why I'm still doing this. Because it was, it was through the interactions, it, it was through these audience members telling me about their personal experience in the audience while watching a show that I was in, which made me think, oh, okay, I'm, on, I'm doing the right thing with my life here. You know, like, um, well, I mean, every time they do Glory Denied, you have to have a talk back. It's such a, it's such a uh, provocative piece that the audience, when they're done, they want to talk about it. They want to talk about what they just experienced. They don't want to just go home. And literally every time I do this show, at least half the audience stays and maybe more to, to be able to talk to us. And we always have like, you know, veterans on the panel, uh, uh, army psychiatrists or psychologists that are there with us. Just because this can be a very triggering piece for people who have, who have been through war. And like we had a guy that was, you know, when you do these panels, you, you, you know, what you have, like, you, know, you always have this microphone and everybody's like, you know, you're passing the microphone and they go, oh, this is the director. Her name's Christine McIntyre and she did so-and-so and this so-and-so. And hi, I'm Michael Mays. I'm the baritone and that's, I did this role. Ha-ha. And then we pass it to like our, one of our veteran liaisons, who's a guy whose best friend was captured in Vietnam and never found and who he never, who never got over it. And the guy starts talking and he's like, you know, I just can't tell you how much, how important this, uh, this performance was to me because, uh, you know, I probably know more about this subject than anybody in this room. And he just stops. And I look over cause you know, you sort of, you're sort of looking forward at the audience. You know, I look over, you know, and this guy who's this grizzled war veteran who's seen, seen things that I could never quite understand ever if I wanted to. He's got tears rolling down his face. And he's trying to he's trying to explain the, the, the catharsis that he just had and trying to put it into terms so these civilians can understand. And that's the beauty of that program. Is that us as civilians, us, you know, on our side of the stage, us as civilians on our side of the, of the theater of war, we can't understand. But theater helps us get a better understanding of what these men go through. We can never understand the trauma that they have in their lives. But with theater and through telling their stories, we can gain a little bit of perspective and, and, and try to bridge that gulf of misunderstanding that, that does exist in the veteran and civilian community. You know, when, when we did this show, we did Glory Denied in Tennessee, who at that time, in that performance in Nashville, the family was there because they because Alice Thompson Thompson was buried like an hour away from Nashville. So her kids were there and his grandkids were there. Colonel Thompson's grandkids were there. And a man got up in the back who, who, uh, whose wife had been deployed to Guantanamo Bay. And just after the, the crisis there, and she'd, she'd also been in Iraq. And he was telling the story like, you know, I am a husband whose wife was deployed and I had to stay home with the kids. And my wife, when she came back, was never the same and was detached from our son 
and my son in turn resented her his entire life. And tonight at the end of the show, he reached over and grabbed my leg and said, dad, I think I understand mom now. And then four weeks later, he sends us all in the cast an email and says that his, that, that his family life has completely changed as a result of him and his son coming to that performance because it allowed his son to see what his mother went through and allowed him to have a, a, a deeper connection with her. And that, I mean, as far as I know, they're doing great today because of that experience. When I did uh, Everest, which is the story of that terrible climbing accident in 96 that killed like 16 people, the guy that I play was also struggling with suicidal ideation. That's why I became a mountain climber because it was the only time he didn't, he, he wasn't absolutely crippled by depression was when he was on a mountain. And he talks about that in the, in the opera, in the show. It's a true story as well. And I had two people come up to me after the show where it was like, I cannot tell you how much it meant to us to see our stories because we, we actually met in a suicidal, a suicide uh, recovery meeting. We're married now, but to see our story told from a different perspective, but in, in, in it gave us, you know, a different way of seeing our own, our own story and our own disease, you know, that's those, those experiences, man, that's, that's what keeps me going. The, the first time I did Dead Man Walking, a woman told me that we, we changed the way she thought about the man who murdered her daughter seven years ago. So, you know, when I started doing opera and, and, and I started having those kinds of experience, that's what I was like, oh, that's why I'm doing this now. I'm not doing this to get, to get famous. I'm not doing this to get rich because Lord knows you ain't going to get rich to an opera unless you're like the, you know, the top 0.03%. I'm doing this for these people. And I know that were I, were I to be called home, were I to be gone, I would, I would be totally happy with what I have done with my career because I have changed lives. And that's not self-aggrandizing. That's just a fact. And I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have to, you know, pontificate about how, you know, the, the, the way that art changes lives and how it can do. I've seen it firsthand. And that's, that's the thing. That's, that's when it all changed for me. That's when it was like, this is the reason why I do this. I'm not doing this so I can sing at the Met. I could give a shit if I ever sing at the Met. It means nothing to me. What means something to me is that, those, that, those, that, that suicidal couple in Kansas City or that, that woman whose daughter was murdered that came to Tulsa, or Colonel Thompson's family who came, and when Laurel Thompson gave me his, her, you know, Colonel Thompson's sobriety coin that I still keep with me wherever I go. Those are the, that's the reasons why I do this. The other stuff is just, it's just, it finances those kind of experiences. Wow. I mean, obviously you've found, you found your purpose in, in what you do. It's, it's giving you um, so much, uh, just as you're giving to others and, and helping other people, it's also giving you this life-sustaining energy and force. And and I could just tell you what, what I witnessed in with Dead Man Walking. It was one of those operas that I had heard about, but never seen until I saw you in it. And I'll never forget meeting you backstage afterwards. Um, during the performance, you had wrenched your back pretty badly. Oh man! Because it's so physical. I mean, it's the craziest, most physical role. Yeah. And I remember watching you afterwards, 
and can see your face was was grimacing with with pain. You were obviously in serious pain. It was the worst Actually, pain I've been were, on stage in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember walking you out out with uh, with Tomer, the head of Atlanta Opera, and and literally walking you out to the car, and I was like. That how can that man get back on that stage and do that again? Probably in what two days? Yeah, I mean, I doubt you were all better in two days. No, no, no. I didn't get better for six months. I had to fly wow. to Germany. I had to fly Stuttgart just after that. And have you have you been doing some physical therapy? Have oh, you found I have a I have a man over here. His name is Matze Knopp, and he is a genius with his hands. It's it is the most it is the most pain I've ever voluntarily submitted myself to. But it, it's very effective. <laughs> and do you do other other ways? What are some of the other ways besides getting on a stage and performing? What are some of the other ways that you think are helping you maintain your balance as a human being and, and that edge between the intensity you need to be a great performer, but also the, the sanity you need to survive day to day? I'd love to sit here and tell you to act like I know. I would love to sit here and be like, oh, well, I do this and I do my meditation in the morning and my yoga. And I can tell you that I don't do any of those things. And I don't know. I don't have a balance. I don't. I, I literally have not maintained a balance. What I, I am and I'm in a personal deficit all the time. You know, I don't get to go home. I spend, you know, 10, 11 months, mostly about 11 months on the road. And, uh, you know, I'm an independent contractor, I'm a freelancer. So if I'm not earning, if I'm not, if I'm not working, I'm not earning, there's no vacation, you know, there's no benefits, there's no healthcare. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a rough life. And, you know, Tomer is actually, you know, one of my good, 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 good buddies in the world. I mean, I just, I, I depend on him for so much, uh, support just through, through our friendship and, and that's one of the things that he's been really on my case about. And it, and it, he's really helped me get there is, you know, understanding that, you know, there, it is a long game and you can burn out and you can, you know, I, I could find myself right back where I was if I'm not careful. And so, you know, I think that's why it's important. You know, men need to have good, solid friendships with, with other men that they trust. And then they can, they can, they feel comfortable talking to you and opening up to, because if I didn't have those relationships with, with, with I, I guess that would be the answer to that question, which would be, you know, having solid friendships with him and my friend David Lomeli and uh, my friend Brian August, who used to work at Atlanta. And, you know, these guys, I know that they're my, that they're my emotional brain trust. And when I get to a point where I'm so diminished and so depleted, I know that I can talk to them and get some straight talk. And I'm not going to get a bunch of flowery platitudes and nonsense like that. I need to be able to have men I can trust and whose character I can rely on. You know. But but along this very very in, intense ride, you've remarried. Oh yes, yeah. So yeah. you found you found love a second time. I mean, which is like divine. So tell us a little bit. How how did you manage to to, to I mean, did, was it tough re-entering into into an intimate uh, relationship? Oh, it was, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't, it wasn't tough entering into relationships because I entered into them left and right after I got divorced. Because you can only imagine a guy who has, who has uh, spent most of his life being an evangelical and got married as a virgin. And then, <laughs> and then, he, then he's single in the opera business. Eh, it's not the worst, not the worst thing to, get, to experience to go through. And, uh, you know, it was, 
it was hard because I, 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 I really went from wanting to be super connected to wanting to be disconnected. But uh, along the way, I, I, I stumbled onto my incredible wife now, Megan Marino. We were actually, we met three years before we actually started dating. I was in, I was in Des Moines. I was the principal and she was in the young artist program in the chorus. And, you know, I thought she was adorable and just like really super talented. Like just, you know, she did for, for her, for her audition for everybody. There's a big thing called death by Aria where, you know, these young artists, they have to sing one aria and there's 40 of them. So it's a night of like 40 arias so long. But she like stuck out like a sore thumb. She was so engaged and so committed to the text. And it was the most engaging and the best performance of the night. And it was the simplest aria of the night. And it sort of stuck in my head. So two years later when I had a, or three years later when I had a friend who was looking for a soloist to do a concert that I was already hired for, he was like, do you know anybody? And I was like, ah, there's this mezzo that I was with Des Moines with. I mean, I bet she would, she would do it, you know? I mean, she seems fun and spunky and awesome and our kind of people. So we ended up like, you know, I got her this job. And unbeknownst to me, she was like, she told her friend, like, do you know that Michael Mays got me a job? And her friend was like, well, you know what you got to do? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I want to get that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and how long have you guys been married? Uh, five coming up on five years now. It'll be four and a half, be five years in August. Oh, good for you. I mean, I know uh, traveling and opera and marriage are are challenging jigsaw puzzles to figure out, but it seems like you found you found the one. But yeah, I mean, I was I was literally coming off. I, I had just gotten out of a relationship. Heart was broken, and I was just you know just hard on my sleeve, just crying, you know, you know, because I, I again this vulnerability thing has a double edged sword, you know. And she was like, she told her friends, like, this, this guy's really sweet. I don't know. I don't think I can. It, this is going to be a short-term thing. And we ended up, we both had dogs. And she was like, hey, you know, you're going to be living like 10 blocks from me. We should walk our dogs together. And within about two months, we were, we were dating. And I told her I loved her. And it wasn't, it wasn't long until we were married. I mean, it was just. Sweet. Yeah, she's my, she's my, she's my, my soulmate. She really is. My, well, I hope I get a chance to meet her yeah. sometime and hear her sing. Adam. My friend, uh, we're, we're coming up on, on close to the amount of time that we usually go. A anything you want to, anything besides com is committing on the air to going to Atlanta to hear Michael sing and Gloria yeah. denied. And I get, what is it, late April, early May? I yeah, it's in April. Right in front of me. Yeah, or yeah, late, uh, May, yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to get you on a, on, a, on a plane to Atlanta, Adam. Yeah, I'm, I'm co-directing wanna... too, so you get to see my directing chops. Yes, co-directing with Tomer Zvulin, who's also a, a, a stage director himself and the head of the company. Adam? Yeah, I mean, this this whole story was just riveting. And, you know, what I took away from it is, you know, you really kind of uh, turned another corner when you were able to kind of take off your mask and just be you and express all of your emotions through your art. So I think that's a, a testimony to everyone out there is just, you know, if you're feeling like, you know, you're not who you are, take off the mask and just use your, your true expression and the art and everything else will follow. So thank you, Mike, for that. Um, any last words before I wrap it up? I'll just tag on to that. I mean, to that statement, you know, like there's only one you in the world. And especially if you're in communication or you're in the arts, you know, what people are interested in is your voice. You know, people don't, when they come see Dead Man Walking or they come see Glory Denied, 
they're not just coming to see that show. They want to see what you have to say about that. And that living your truth and being being authentic and actually as a communicator, as an artist, you know, if you don't do those things, you're not telling the truth. And the great thing about being on the stage is we tell we tell the truth with a very exquisite lie, you know. And you you got to be able to tell the truth about yourself before you can tell the truth about somebody else. Absolutely, that is beautiful words to end on. Well. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. And our guest today was Michael Mays. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much, Michael. It was awesome talking to you. My pleasure. <laughs>